Would you open God's Word to Psalm 22? Psalm 22, we'll be reading the entire psalm from verse 1 to verse 32. This morning as we are uh, looking at a short uh, series of psalms uh, that I've entitled the, the Psalms of Easter because they prepare our hearts to consider uh, the one who was afflicted um, and the one whom we celebrate at Easter. Psalm 22, verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue is sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. 
The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the earth, all the ends of the earth shall come and remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. This is the word of Lord from Psalm 22. Would you bow with me asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts this morning. Father, you have revealed your plans with us centuries before they happened. Father, as we have heard your word, which you have declared in advance. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that Christ would be exalted, in a way that your character and your power and your spirit would work in us. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ for his glory and honor. Amen. Psalm 22 was written by David. But so much of this psalm is about Jesus. Spurgeon and other Bible teachers described Psalm 22 as the psalm of the cross. Because so much of the psalm foreshadows and predicts with incredible detail what was going to happen to the one who would be crucified, to the one who would be greater than David, a descendant of David who would reign on David's throne. When we consider the images of the psalm and the specific details it contains, this psalm is like the Isaiah 53 of the Psalter. This psalm starts with crying. The psalm will go into the details of, of the one who would be crucified. And yet, this psalm ends with praising. You could see the two major parts of the psalm. The first part from verse 1 to verse 21 where the cry, the affliction, and the trust of the afflicted one is described in great detail. But then, starting with verse 22 all the way to verse 31, we see a change, a change of tone, change of details to praise, to worship, even to proclamation. So in this psalm, we have two major parts that seem vastly, vastly different. Affliction in the first half, Praise 
in the second. And you may wonder, how can affliction and praise be in the same psalm together to the same degree, in this particular degree? In our lives, often, if you are real with your affections, you, you come to realize and, and recognize and say, affliction and praise don't belong together. Right? And they often are perceived as, as opposites in our lives, for sure. And yet, in this psalm, they belong together. It's the afflicted one who this psalm is written about that will lead us at the end of the psalm to, to consider praising the God who has been with him in his affliction. We're getting ourselves a little bit too ahead of what this journey is about. As we look at the journey from affliction to praise, notice how in each of these two halves of the psalm, there's significant emphases. Uh, so much so that actually each half has two, set, two emphases of their own. So this message, the journey from affliction to praise, will have four points. Four places we will stop at and consider carefully. Because this journey uh, from affliction to praise does not come naturally to us. And I pray... This morning, as we look at this psalm, that this psalm will encourage each and every one of us to look at the God who has turned affliction into praise. That each of us would look at the God who has turned affliction into praise. That's the primary aim of this psalm, to look at the God who has turned affliction into praise. Let's look at the four points, the four stopping moments of this psalm. This psalm starts, this journey from affliction to praise starts with a crying. The cry of the afflicted. That's a starting point of the journey of this psalm. We see this in verses 1 and 2. The crying of the afflicted one starts not merely with crying, but starts with why questions? Do you ever ask why questions? Who doesn't? And notice what is the content of these why questions. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? The psalmist expresses his feelings of being forsaken by God, of being far from him. And two times in the psalm, David will ask the Lord, be not far from me. Look, look down the psalm, verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there's no one, there's none to help. Look also at verse 19. But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. It's one thing to be 
in affliction and in despair and in distraught. It's another and even worse to feel that God is distant from you and far off from you in the midst of that. But David's cry was not only because he was forsaken by God, not only because he felt far off from God's help, but he also was crying because he felt God's silence. Do you see it in verse 2? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, and I find no rest. Friends, God's people can go through seasons in their lives when such experiences feel very personal for us as well. Forsaken, feeling like God is far away, feeling like we're getting the silent treatment from the Lord. But these words were uttered and written down in the psalm uh, first and foremost in David's life, but they were not written just about David. And they're not written just about us or any of us. They were written looking forward to the one who would utter them in probably the greatest display of being forsaken, far off, and fearing or hearing and experiencing the silent treatment of God. That was Jesus on the cross. These words, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, were actually cried by him. Mark 15, 34, we read that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, friends, the cry of the forsaken one the cry of the afflicted one in Psalm 23 is actually the cry of Jesus on the cross. It's the cry of the one who experienced being forsaken by God to the most degree and receiving God's silence for what seemed to be an eternity while hanging on the cross. All this was taken place for Jesus on the cross as Jesus cried, the cry of the afflicted one. But what a comfort for us to know that there is a psalm in the Bible that starts with a why questions. What a comfort to know that not only David cried to the Lord in this way, but Jesus himself cried to his God in this way. Friends, there's nothing ungodly about crying to the Lord. There's nothing ungodly of coming to the Lord even with our why questions. There's nothing godly about ignoring our grief or holding on to our affliction and just suppressing it. We must not be reluctant to cry out to the Lord in our affliction. 
in expressing to him our feelings and our experiences and our griefs. This psalm gives us the permission to do so. And Jesus on the cross, quoting this psalm for his own afflictions, gives us the permission that when we go through our afflictions, which, which surely are not even close to the crucifixion and the cross that Jesus has borne, but when we go through our afflictions, we too have the permission and the encouragement to cry out to our God and ask of him, my God, my God, why? Asking the why question is not necessarily a sign of distrust. And even though the psalmist starts with a why question, he's holding on to God in trust in the midst of this affliction. And this is what we see in the second part of the psalm, or in the second part of the first major half of the psalm, verses 3 to 21. What we see here is not only the, the affliction that he was bearing, but what we see is the trust that he continued to have while he was crying to the Lord. So look at the trust of the afflicted. This is point two of the message. The trust of the afflicted. Starting with verse three, David shifts our attention to describe God's character. And he highlights two attributes of God's character. His holiness and his trustworthiness. Now this is a little bit surprising. After crying to the Lord and saying, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far off from me? The next thing that David does is to say, yet you're holy. How amazing. In the midst of crying, why, O oh Lord? The next thing that he does is to recount the character of God, the attributes of God. And the first attribute is the holiness of God. And right after that, he goes on to describe his trustworthiness. David says in verses 3 to 5, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and you were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Do you hear how often David brings up the character of God's trustworthiness? The point of this short historical overview is to recount that God in his holiness has proven worthy to be trusted in the past. But what about now? God's past experiences don't seem to match David's current experience and circumstances. As soon as David ends this short expose, this short overview of God's trustworthiness in the past, as soon as he finishes verse 5, he continues in verse 6 with a but I. And he says, but I am a worm, not a man. I wonder if David was feeling in his heart this. What good is God's faithfulness in the past if he's not so with me now? I wonder if that's what, what's causing his heart to say, but now I am a worm, not a man. 
It's hard to know exactly what was going on in David's heart as he was uttering these words. Perhaps it was not so much the lure or the temptation to accuse the Lord that he's not present with him in the present. Perhaps all of this, but now I am a worm, is because he's going to tell us about how others are mocking him in the present because he continues to trust in the Lord in the present. Look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Quote, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. David is bringing up his current situation not so much because he distrusts in the Lord, but because he's being mocked for continuing to trust in the Lord even in the present experiences. And what makes David's affliction even more painful is that while God seems silent, people are not. In our affliction, we oftentimes would prefer that people would be silent and God would be speaking. But here, God is silent and, and people are speaking. And what they're speaking are words of, of mocking David even more. It's as if they're rubbing it into him. He trusts in the Lord. Clearly, though, clearly, even to the outside despisers, David present, David's present trust in the Lord was so evident that even his enemies knew about it. And they continue to mock him through these present experiences. So David here, I don't think he is really struggling with the trust in the Lord. He's holding on to that trust while he's asking the why questions. But notice that the despising of the people and their mocking was directed not only against David, but against his God. They mocked God by challenging God to deliver his servant, to rescue him. And their mockery ends on a weird note. They say, for he delights in him. Now, who is delighting in who here? At first sight, when I was reading through this verse, I thought it's David who's trusting in the Lord, who is delighting in the Lord. And I'm sure that's the case. But if we look at the verse, it's actually the Lord who is challenged to rescue his servant. The Lord is challenged by the mockers to save this afflicted one. And the last line, for he delights in him, is really speaking about the Lord delighting in his servant. In other words, can God save his servant whom he delights in? Can God save him now? David goes on with telling us why he continues to trust in the Lord. And we see this in verses 9 through 11. It's as if he is talking to his mockers to the people who are standing by, surrounding him and despising him and throw, wagging their heads and, and throwing their, their insults at him and at his trust in the Lord. And David says, 
Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. This is why David is trusting in the Lord. David acknowledges that his life has been under God's care, not merely from his toddler years, not even simply from his birth, but from the womb. God is involved in our lives, even from the womb. Friend, this is one of the reasons why Christians believe that human life starts not with birth, but with conception. So we oppose, rightly, biblically, abortion. Because we believe that God is involved with us as humans, even from the womb. The Lord has been his God from the womb. So the psalmist continues to put his confidence in the Lord. There where nobody could protect him, where he was fragile in the womb, he could not protect himself. The Lord was with him. Now at the end of verse 11, the psalmist says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. What a contrast between the people who respond to David's affliction by mocking him and his God. And David, who responds to these afflictions by giving a, an evidence, reason, why David continues to trust in the Lord. From verses 12 to 21, the spotlight changes to the unbearable affliction of the afflicted one. Verse 12 and 13, the people who inflict the pain and uh, who are insulting David uh, are presented as beasts, as ferocious beasts, as bulls, as lions, as wild ox. This is a way of saying the enemies that are acting against the psalmist here are acting so inhumanly that the best way to describe them is that they are beasts. They're animals who cannot be controlled or tamed. In verse 14 and 15, the affliction is described in graphic images. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. The life of this man seems utterly wasted, like water. Strength utterly gone, like dried up pieces of pottery that have been broken, ending up in the dust of death. In verses 16 through 18, the affliction continues. The description continues on. 
For dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircle me. And it cannot get more specific. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. These were the, the, the words that David wrote hundreds of years before the crucifixion of Jesus. David experienced afflictions, but he never experienced this explicit word-for-word degree of afflictions. David was inspired by God to foresee and foreshadow and predict the affliction of the one greater than David who would come to inherit David's throne, David's king. And about that king, every one of these details, every one of them to the dot would be fulfilled and acted upon. This is the evidence, one of the amazing evidences of God's existence that he exists because he's able to predict the future, not only to predict it, but to determine it ahead of time. Now, some may say, even though Jesus quoted this psalm on the cross because he happened to know this psalm, after all, this psalm was part of the worship selection of hymns of the Jewish people, Just Jesus happened to know this hymn and this song, so uh, Jesus just happened to sing his favorite hymn on the cross. This is not so much a a prediction. It's just Jesus happened to, to quote this psalm on the cross. But what about the Roman soldiers who had no knowledge of the hymns of the Jewish people? What about them who had... No experience with the Jewish people had worshipped in the temple and had received as revelation from God. What about them when they divided his clothes and cast lots for his clothing? Well, friends, this psalm shows us that God not only predicted the future, but God determined it. He determined the events of the crucifixion long before they took place. And God caused even the heathen, brutal Roman soldiers to act exactly as the Lord determined years, hundreds of years before. Oh, friends, God exists. And God's word will come to pass in its fullness So let this evidence stir your heart to trust him and to look to him because every one of his words will come to pass, even the casting of lots over some clothes of a crucified one. Yet despite the description of the crucifixion, at the deepest moment of describing the affliction of the cross, the psalmist turns once again to the Lord in trust. 
How do we know that? Because he asks again, once again, in verses 19 through 21, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. And this time, notice how the psalmist describes, O Lord. He doesn't say, O my God. He says, O you, my help. That's the cry of the one who keeps trusting, even from the cross. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. What makes these words incredibly powerful is that they are uttered by the one who had just described his crucifixion. This tells us that the trust of this afflicted one, his trust was in the Lord while he was being crucified. It's one thing to trust in the Lord before an affliction. It's one thing to trust in the Lord after the affliction has gone. It's another to trust him in the middle of the affliction. Why is this man continuing to trust in his God from the cross? Earlier in verse 15, when we were looking at the details of the affliction, there's one detail that I wonder if you glossed over. I certainly have glossed over it at first, and I intentionally left it out until now. The psalmist described his afflictions in this way at the end of verse 8, 15. You lay me in the dust of death. Throughout the description of his afflictions, he has been describing his afflictions as caused by these wild beasts, by these animal-like human beings. Because they have been, physically speaking, the ones who have inflicted all the afflictions. But here we get a sense of what he knew, who was doing ultimately all of this. He says, you, O Lord, you lay me in the dust of death. So the psalmist knows that the one whom he is calling out for help is the very one who he knows is ultimately doing it all. But notice how verse 21 ends. You have rescued me from the horn, from the horns of the wild oxen. In the Hebrew language, the word order of this line is a little different than the English translation. In the Hebrew language, uh, the words, you have rescued me, are at the end of the sentence. And the NASB uh, keeps the word order of the Hebrew in this case. And the NASB says, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. In other words, the psalmist is telling us that the God to whom he has cried out for help, the God of whom he experienced for a season a time of no answering and silence 
Now at the end of verse 21, the psalmist declares in the most surprising way, he says, from the, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me or you rescue me. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. The psalm started with the words, you don't answer me. But now in verse 21, the psalmist says, you have answered me. Oh, friends, this is how after the agony of the cross and after God has inflicted the affliction upon his servant to the point of laying him in the dust of death, now this section of his affliction ends with the words, you've answered me. You rescued me. Can God be trusted? This psalm will tell you, absolutely. Even through the cross. Even through experiencing what it looks like to lay down in the dust of death. Absolutely, this God can be trusted. The mocking of God's trustworthiness is now finally silenced and vindicated because God has been able to save his afflicted one even from the despised cross, even from the horrible afflictions of what looked like an unrescuable afflicted one. Oh, friends, we might say, praise the Lord. What a wonderful ending. But this is not the ending of the psalm. As sweet as this ending is, this is not the end of this psalm. This is just the end of the first half of the psalm. The point of the psalm is not simply to tell us that God has answered the affliction of his afflicted one. The point of the psalm is to see how God's afflicted servant responds in the aftermath of his crucifixion and death. And this is what we get in the second half of the psalm. Point number three, the praise of the afflicted. The praise of the afflicted. We have looked at the cry of the afflicted. We have looked at the trust of the afflicted. Now let's look at the praise of the afflicted. And we see this in verses 22 to 26. There's such a change of tone, starting with verse 22, that liberal scholars claim that the second half of this psalm could not belong to the first. This is the best that liberal scholars can do. They just don't, can't imagine how the second half of this psalm really belongs to the same psalm as the first half. But the second half of the psalm is filled with praise. Words for worship, for praise, for awe show up eight times in the second half. And the surprising part is to notice who elicits the praise? It's the afflicted one. Humanly speaking, there's no way one can explain how the crucified one becomes the one who elicits the praise of God. He becomes the one who proclaims the name of God to the congregation. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And by the way, these words are quoted by the author of Hebrews. And when the author of Hebrews writes about these words and quotes them in Hebrews chapter 2, the passage that our brother Leroy read earlier in the service, 
when the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 quotes these words, he clearly attributes these words as belonging to Jesus. It's as if he's saying, in the words of Psalm 22, we have the words of Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 2, 10 through 12. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. According to Hebrews, these are the words of Jesus. Why is the afflicted one praising God? Well, he says in verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Oh, friends, the afflicted one who has been crucified, laid in the dust of death. Now he tells us that the God to whom he has cried, the God whom he thought was silent and far away from him, who for a season appeared as if not answering, this God has not despised him. This God has actually listened to his cry. In God's eyes, the affliction of this particular afflicted one was far from being reason to, to despise. It was actually the way he would bring many sons to glory through the suffering. The afflicted one comes to realize that God has not hidden his face, not ultimately, even though for a moment he was forsaken by God. We may feel the for forsakenness by God. We may feel being far from him, but, but this is precious insight for us to know that God is not hiding his face from his beloved. Another reason why the psalmist mentions for us praising God is because God actually heard his cry. Oh, well, friends, let this encourage us in our afflictions when we may feel like we're getting God's silent treatment, knowing that God's timing is different than ours. And though we may feel he is not answering or hearing our cries, the Lord does hear the cry of his afflicted. The afflicted one gives us another reason why he's praising God. He says in verse 25, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Even the praise of the afflicted one has its source in God. How beautiful. How can you praise God after being crucified? We might say, bitter angry. Couldn't God do it another way? But no. No bitterness, no anger, but praise. The only explanation to the source of this praise, of this praise, is God himself. From him comes the praise that this afflicted one is able to lift up to the Lord. But this psalm ends not merely with a praise of the afflicted one, 
his praise and his proclamation about his God has rippling effects. It has rippling effects not only in the congregation, it has rippling effects not only in Israel, it has rippling effects in all the earth. Look at verses 27 through 31. At several categories of people who are described as worshiping the Lord as a result of the praise and proclamation of this afflicted one. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn. Later in verse 27, all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Later in verse 29, all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. In other words, the impact of the proclamation of what the Lord has done for this afflicted one will have worldwide impact. This means that the praise and the proclamation of the afflicted one will be the flame that sets missions ablaze. Because of Psalm 22, because of the promise that we see here at the end of Psalm 22, we have confidence why we must continue to support the spread of missions to the ends of the earth, the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is why Amy Rester is going to Southeast Asia this summer for six weeks. This is why we support Ruth in the Middle East and encourage her and support her in learning Arabic so she can make the news about Jesus known into the Arab-speaking world. This is why we give generously to missions, why we support pastors and missionaries in various parts of the world. Because of the praise of the afflicted one will reach the nations. But there's another category of people in verse 30 and 31. The posterity, the coming generation. What will they do? Look at verse 31, what they will do. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Some of us will never go to another nation of the world to communicate the gospel in person. Some of us will just not have the means or the ability to do so, but we can all cross that hallway into the children's ministry and proclaim the news about the afflicted one and teach that news to the next generation. We can all get involved and take responsibility to make sure that the gospel is reaching not just across nations but across generations. Have you considered that the work of missions is equally important as the work of children's ministry? I know Leona's just saying, oh, thank you, Samuel. Have you considered that actually what's being entrusted to us is to make sure we communicate this news about the afflicted one and what God has done in him, not only to people of different languages and social statuses, but make sure we communicate it even to those who are not yet unborn. That means a commitment to children's ministry, a commitment to be even in the nursery and speak to them about the Lord, even in the nursery, 
You've heard it earlier in the psalm. The Lord has been with a psalmist even in the womb. Causing the psalmist to trust in the Lord even from the womb. That's why we want to encourage all of us who are members of this congregation. We want to be devoted and take responsibility for the children's ministry, for every child who comes to be a part of our congregation. We want to support the parents and we want to make sure every parent understands the responsibility to speak about the afflicted one to the next generation does not stand with the church. It stands with the parents. You can't do children's ministry in the church if you're not doing it already in your home. You've got to take responsibility to make sure this gospel is being passed on to those who are yet unborn by a commitment to read scripture in the home with your children to pray with them, to sing with them, to help them apply the truth of the gospel in their lives. Help them see that the gospel is relevant when they fight with one another about their toys. Help them see that Jesus is worth it. My friends, my brothers and sisters, we must be committed to take the gospel not only to the nations, but to our children. We must be committed to take the gospel not only cross geographically, but cross what will these people, what will these people nationwide speak about? Look at the way this psalm ends, and this will be the final point. They shall come and proclaim what? His righteousness to a people yet unborn. What shall they proclaim? That he has done it. That he has done it. Has done what? Has done what the psalm has been speaking about. Point number four, the last point. This is not only about the cry of the afflicted. This is not only about the, 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 the trust of the afflicted. This is not only about the praise of the afflicted. This is about the God of the afflicted. This is about the God of the afflicted. This entire psalm ends on this note. That God has done it. He has worked through the suffering of his afflicted one. Perhaps this is why Jesus on the cross not only cried to his Father and his God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But his last words on the cross was all, were also, it is finished. Bible teachers point out that Jesus on the cross quoted both the beginning and the end of this psalm. God has done it. God has acted in the suffering of his afflicted one. He has worked through his suffering in such a way that people now can come and begin turning to the Lord so they would begin worshiping the Lord. God's doing continued in the past suffering of his afflicted one. God's doing continued through his death and continued through his resurrection, proving that God indeed heard the cry of his afflicted one, rescuing him, delivering him from the mouth of the lion of death. Oh, friends, God has done it. This is what we must proclaim. At the end of the day, this psalm is not ultimately about the cry of the afflicted. This psalm is ultimately not even about the trust of the afflicted. 
And this psalm is ultimately not even about the, the praise of the afflicted. Ultimately, this psalm lands on the God of the afflicted who has done it. Friends, I don't know what are the afflictions that you and I can go through. But today, consider that our God is worthy of the same trust that the afflicted one exerted. He is worthy to cry to in your affliction. He is worthy to trust in in your affliction. Even if he chooses to bring full deliverance of that affliction on the other side of death. He is worthy to praise him even if he is silent for a season. Even if we feel like he has forsaken us for a season. Even if it feels like he is silent and not close to us for a season. He is worth it to be trusted because he has done it in Jesus, and he will do it in you too. Yesterday, April 9th, 77 years ago, 1945, one of the German concentration camps, German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. And after the war, one of the medical doctors who was in the concentration camp and observed Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, life and last days and even last moments uh, reflected this on what he observed about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Through the half door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer. And then he climbed the steps of the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, he said, I have hardly seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. And while being led away, he turned, Bonhoeffer turned to his fellow prisoner, Payne Best. And his last words to him were, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer was convinced that God has done it in Jesus. And because of that, he could trust God 
that he will do it for him as well. My dear friends, this is what we must proclaim. This is what we're called to embrace. That God has done it in Jesus. So what response does this psalm call for us to have? In these last few verses, the psalm encourages that the people of the earth would remember and turn to the Lord. So if you have heard today what God has done in Jesus, in his beloved, then turn to him today if you have not done so yet. Come to him with confidence and faith and full trust that the God who has done it in Jesus will also do it in you. The, the psalm hopes and expects that people would turn to the Lord and worship the Lord and serve the Lord and proclaim his righteousness to yet those unborn. I wonder which of these responses is the Lord calling you to have today. Perhaps there are several responses that you have neglected until today. The effect of Psalm 21 is a worldwide effect. It's a multi-generational effect. So look to the God who has turned affliction into praise. He has done it. And he can do it to you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a magnificent testimony that you are real, that you are the only true God to declare centuries before of the afflictions and the suffering that you have prepared for your anointed King, for Jesus. And that through the sufferings of David and through his writings in this psalm, you have told us what you would do in your afflicted one. And you have told us that this news will have worldwide impact. Oh God, would you work in us today? Would you work in our gathering? Would you enable us to, to become worshipers of you who proclaim the wonders of your majestic gospel? Oh God, would you work? And enable us to make this gospel known in our own lives, in our city, and even to the ends of the earth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.